This morning we have quite a lengthy scripture passage, two chapters we are reading in the book of Jeremiah. I invite you to turn there with me as we read through chapter 21 as well as 22. And we are going to get through these this morning, chapter 21 and 22 of Jeremiah. You say, I can't believe that. It's never happened before in history. Um, we're going to do it this morning. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares in Jeremiah 21, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go, may go away from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Let my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. You who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet surely I will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worshipped other gods and served them. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here any more. 
But he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and shall see this land no more. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages, and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers, and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Do not... Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, Lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abraim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated from all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, make your nest in the cedars. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who face you, whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the hand of the Chaldeans. So I'll cast you out, and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken vessel, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Well, as we did last week, I'm going to, uh, again this week, uh, really... Uh, not bypass a passage, but really speak to its message in terms of its later use by Jeremiah, we have seen a consistent statement, a declaration that he has made over and over and over again, and we want to look at some facets of it um, in its application to the kings of Judah, three generations particularly, um, well really just two generations because... Two of the kings are out of the same generation, being brothers. And so we're going to look at the three successive kings uh, following Josiah. And uh, But consistently we have found that there is a resistance even to uh, later generations, later reigns. Um, we find this repetitive behavior of Israel, which requires a repetitive message by the prophet, because nothing changes. The same problems exist 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, we're dealing with the same issues, and we see the same uh, rebellion in the hearts of the people of Judah, first against God, and then against God's agent of judgment. And that's what we're going to focus in on this morning uh, more specifically. And before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word. And we do pray that you might uh, open our eyes. Not only the eyes of our mind to understand it, but of our hearts to receive it. Receive your truth as authoritative, as demanding something of us, and that we might be prepared to learn, to learn the lesson that uh, we see by negative example in Judah, that we might be attentive to your word to allow it to change us, transform us. 
Uh, and Lord, we pray for your help today to do that, as we've, you know, we know you've promised that those who ask wisdom of you, that, you will re- that they'll receive it from your hand. And so Lord, we do so this morning. And again, as always, we pray that it might be in conformity with your word and not with our own ideas and belief systems that run contrary to your truth. We praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to chapter 21 and we find... um, a king on the throne, and uh, because we're a little sketchy a lot of times on our history of the kings of Judah, especially those last ones, uh, we might need to uh, revisit some of the last chapter or two of uh, Second Kings, and we will get there a couple of times here this morning in, into Second Kings, but that's the last two chapters are really the historical account of what Jeremiah is dealing with. And you'll notice that we're going to start off in reverse, in kind of an unusual order, not, not truly reverse order, because we're going to have Zedekiah sending emissaries, two of his emissaries, to Jeremiah, seeking some input, um, some help, if you will. Um, and, uh, of course, Zedekiah, in this uh, passage in chapter 21, is the last king of Judah uh, that we're going to have in this period, in this age. Uh, and so if we, and then we see later on, we get to chapter 22, that he is going to be referencing Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim. I did it in reverse order, Jehoiakim and then Jehoiachin. And the reason we are going to look at these in this order again is because God's word is interested in themes, not chronology. So we're dealing with the kings out of order. And you might say, well, what does it have to do? Well, I want you to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, these guys are all related to each other. They should have learned from each other, and that is why um, a message to the Jehoiakim um, is just as relevant to the King Zedekiah. They were brothers. And Jehoiakim, um, son Jehoiachin, is still alive, as far as we know. He is in Babylon. And so he wasn't killed. He was taken captive and carried away. And so we have these three men intimate to each other, um, two of them raised together, the, the Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, and Jehoiachin being the son and uncle of the, of the two kings on either end of his reign, a very brief reign, really. And uh, really all of these men have fairly brief reigns, um, relatively speaking. And so we come into uh, this these two chapters really with a full message that covers uh, a couple of decades really um, between the three of them and we find uh, a consistent message that the problem um, hasn't gone away and so the the judgment hasn't been taken away but in fact the problem has been exacerbated it's been made worse because not only have they resisted Jeremiah, they've also resisted, um, as prophecy comes true in their lifespan, um, they are rejecting it and ignoring it. Surprise, surprise. People are rejecting, ignoring uh, the prophetic word of God coming to be. And if you think that is rare, it is not rare. It is the norm. Um, I believe a lot of prof- prophecy was ignored as it was coming true in the days of a man of, called Jesus of Nazareth. That uh, there was a lot of prophecy out of the Old Testament that was coming true. There was lots of activity around uh, prior to his birth, at his birth, after his birth. Um, and throughout his ministry, he fulfilled them. Going back to the birth of John the Baptist and, the, and the, all of that that happened with the... Uh, his father in the temple losing his ability to speak and having his vision all the way through to the angelic uh, representation to the or, or presentation to the shepherds and all the word that went out as well as the prophets as Jesus enters the temple as a child throughout the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist you, you find that people don't pay attention even though when called upon by Herod they could go right to the passage and say oh he's going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's not ignorance that's the problem. It's that we have blinded ourselves to seeing prophecy happen. And that is 
to some degree true of our generation as well. Um, and uh, we've done a lot of work on that. But I want to understand that these men weren't just looking forward in the prophetic word of Jeremiah that someday this stuff was going to happen. They could look prophetically backward and say, well, it happened during my brother's reign. It happened during my nephew's reign. And here I am in exactly the same situation. And this is the circumstance where Zedekiah is sending a couple of his representatives to Jeremiah, and this is the condition. And so we come to chapter 21. He sends these two men uh, to (laughs) ask uh, uh, of Jeremiah, verse 2, Please inquire of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar... um, King of Babylon makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. Now, let us remind ourselves what Jeremiah has been preaching for years. King of the north that you didn't know is going to come. Now, you might think this is the first time. This is not the first time. This is the third visit of the Babylonian army to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's already been sacked by them twice. Zedekiah was put into power by the Babylonians to be their vassal king in Jerusalem. And the guy has reigned there about nine years or so by this point. And instead of recognizing that God is with this man because the prophets had foretold it, it had already come to be twice Instead of surrendering to that authority, he rebels against it. And they start raising up a res- insurrection against the Babylonians. The Babylonians catch wind of it very quickly. And this is now the third time. And the Babylonians, you see, loved baseball. You can tell because three strikes, you're out. They love baseball. So this is the third time and that's enough. And this time they're going to go in and destroy the entire city, including the temple. And this is critical for us to understand how Zedekiah is viewing this. He's still believing the false prophets. And the false prophets we've already addressed through Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah has already called upon them. Stop listening to them. And here's what they're saying. Yes, Jehoiakim, is dead. Just like the prophet said, yes, Jehoiachin carried off into captivity, yes, but the temple is still standing. And so is the palace of the king. So you see, God won't let them overrun his temple mount. And remember, that's what they were taking security in. This is the, the mount of God. He would never let any Gentiles come in and destroy it. And they had this false idea that no matter how they lived, because they were the possessors within the walls of Jerusalem of the Temple Mount, that no force would ever penetrate and completely decimate that city. They convinced themselves of it. And history seemed to prove it. The Assyrians... Wiped out. Babylonians came, twice sacked the city, but never burned down either the palace nor the temple. Installed a new king there, vassal king. Installed a second one, Zedekiah. And so they had this wrong-ended notion that somehow, because they were the people of Judah, because this was Jerusalem, that they could have this kind of right to go to the man of God and say, inquire of the Lord for us. Um, And this happens to this day, by the way. People who live their lives directly in disobedience to God's word come to godly people and say, oh, please pray for me. And what do they always want you to pray for them? Good. 
irrespective of how they've lived their lives and the decisions they've made, they want you to pray for them. And, of course, my response usually is um, because you don't have an audience before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that you ask me to pray for you? That things will go well for you, even though you're making choices that deny God's existence, pretty much? And you want me to pray for you. And this is typical. And it goes all the way back to then. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? All the way back to there, there's the king going, oh, I've got a problem. All right, why does he have a problem? He has a problem because he rebelled against his king. Nebuchadnezzar, he created this problem. And now here we are, and, and in, in Kings we're even told the exact day, um, the exact month and day of his reign. So he had been king for, what, nine years, ten months, and ten days, something like that. And so he's, he's there, and he rebels. And so here comes the army, and now he's going to say, well, um, I don't want to live my choices. My kids are so tired of that phrase. I don't want to live the choice I made. I rebelled, and now, oh, well, let's go to the prophet of God, and he'll pray for us. And then we can see the wonderful working of God on our behalf, and then we'll all praise God. We'll all applaud him once we see him doing his wonderful works. And they didn't correlate the wonderful works of God with an obedient walk with God. That you gotta put the blood on the lintel and doorposts of your house. You gotta start walking out of Egypt and walk in the midst of a sea. You're gonna have to face all of that and as But no, they wanted the wonderful works of God without any requirement of them. And the foundation of their expectation was not their conduct. It wasn't their faith even. It was, well, the temple building is right there. God can't let anyone trample on that. As though God needs a temple to live in. I think Paul in the Mars Hill talked about that. As though God needs anything like that. And so we come to Zedekiah's request that, irrespective of the fact that we have ignored your ministry now for decades, my brother, my nephew, and now me, irrespective of the fact that we caused this problem by our own rebellion against the word of the Lord and the agent of God, can you please pray that we get out of this trouble? I caused the trouble. The trouble persists because of my disobedience to God's word. But surely you'll pray on our behalf and the king will just go away. All the problems will just melt off of us um, like it did with the Assyrians so long ago. Um, never, you know, Not associating the fact that there might have been some actions going on there. Just like it was under Josiah and the righteousness. And this is what the prophet's going to remind him of. Is that the wrath of God abides upon you because there's no repentance. And so here comes the response of Jeremiah. It says, you go back to your king and you tell him this. Not only is God not going to help you, God is going to fight for your enemy and against you. That's a frightening thought when you think about what God did against the Assyrians who far outnumbered and had Jerusalem surrounded and was ready to capture it, and boom! God says, I'm going to fight against them. Boom, they're gone. This is what it means for God to fight against you in the history of Israel, to see God fight against their enemies in the times of not only Moses and the Exodus, but in the times of Joshua and, and, and of David. And we see what God does against the enemies of Israel. And now to have that God turn himself and now fight against his own people. That God is on the side of the Babylonians. That he is not going to allow you to do injury to them. And that 
Now the anger, fury, and the wrath of God is not subsided simply because you asked some man of God to pray for you, for your good, without any expectation that you're going to repent, change your ways at all. Well, if I could just get this person to pray for me, then all my problems will just melt away, and I can keep living the way I'm living. No. First of all, true man of God isn't going to pray for you in that respect. They're going to pray for you to be brought to repentance, whatever it takes. Lay it on them heavier. And that's essentially what, where the Lord comes to them. Not, I'm just not allowing the Babylonians to take you. I'm going to help them. And so here's the wonderful advice from God to Zedekiah, and really to all the people of Judah. And the advice is that... Um, You're going to die the three ways that we've been talking about. You're going to die by pestilence. You're going to die by the sword. You're going to die by famine. Two of those three are by the working of God directly. He brings pestilence into the inner walls of Jerusalem, and the indication is more die from that than anything. Those that survive that, many are killed by the sword. There's famine to the point that, as he talks about in Lamentations, um, that they're eating their own children. If that seems grotesque to you, remember they were already sacrificing their children to idols. So the taking of their child's life was already part of their culture. It's just simply instead of leaving it there for the as an idolatrous sacrifice, they were consuming the sacrifice. And so this is what's going on. That's how severe this famine gets. And this isn't the last time it's going to be like, it's going to be like that back later on in the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans as well. Josephus is going to talk about that then as there. And so we find that God says, I'm going to go against you. The only hope you have is to defect to the Babylonians. What are you doing? You are making a declaration that I believe what God has said, that the Babylonians are his instruments. And I am trusting in the word of the prophet over that fancy white building on the mountain. When you defect out of Jerusalem, you sneak out, and, and again, Second Kings describes this, when you sneak out, that's your only hope, and you will be allowed to live, the Babylonians will receive you, um, you've humbled yourself before them, and really you've humbled yourself before the agent of God, and therefore you have surrendered this foolish notion that you are secure because of some big white building on a hill. And we might not have big white buildings on hills, well we do actually, um, in church today that people are trusting in, um, but many say, well I I trust, I made this baptism or this profession of faith, and they've never lived like in any days of their life, but they have that stake, and they say, oh, God has to receive me because I have that stake. Never mind that they are in constant rebellion against him, which demonstrates that they have never given their life to Christ genuinely, fully. And so, defect the only thing to, to help you survive, you know, there, there's a way of life, there's a way of death, and the way of life is you've got to run to the enemy because your enemy is actually my agent because you've made yourselves my enemy. And so you're going to have to humble yourselves and acknowledge that this is the agent of God, that Nebuchadnezzar is the king and uh, we are going to crawl back to him and ask for his forgiveness and be at his mercy. But the fact is, is that all of Judah and Jerusalem is at his mercy already. Well, they, it's just a matter of acknowledgement. And so here, these have an opportunity for life. And that is simply to go back. from your place of rebellion and go back to a place of humility and recognize this is God's man. Yes, he's not born 
of Abraham. You say a little bit about that designation of the church in Sunday school, a little bit. Uh, for the adults, he's not born of the descendants of Abraham, but very shortly after this event, it is apparent that he becomes a child of Abraham by faith. This is God's man. And it's time for you to recognize it and swallow your pride in having a big white building on a hill to following the word of the Lord. And so we have that instruction to all the people. And now we have a specific message for the last part of chapter 21 and going into chapter 22 for the house of the king. And that is the house of David. And so it really encompasses three generations, not three generations, three rulers. Um, and we find it commanded to them that their, God's expectation um, is not to preserve them, but to destroy them because they are leading their people wrongly. And when we begin to understand the political nature of God's wrath here, that this was not just an issue of moral decay among the people, but it was leadership decay. It was among those that were supposed to serve the people and direct them to God that God holds them accountable for all that happens. Yes, we've identified, well, the women were out there doing things and the husbands were letting that happen. We saw that. Um, but fundamentally, the buck stops at the king. And God has worked his way up the ladder, if you will. He has talked to the priests, and he has, he has, and he'll continue doing that. And he has condemned them for, for allowing idolatrous worship into the very courtyards of the temple. And, and so he's taken to, to task everyone. Well, now he's going to take to task the reigning kings. Remember, the time of Josiah's reforms are over. Now, all of the load is coming on to these three kings. And he's going to talk about a lack of righteousness, a lack of justice in the land, that there are going to be the plundering and the oppression of the masses, of the people, by a handful. And that handful includes the family of the king. That they are the ones that are supporting and perhaps getting kickbacks and allowing it, or perhaps doing it themselves, of taking advantage of their position, not to serve their people, but to extract everything they can out of their people. And it talks about that instead of seeking after righteousness, all they had was covetousness. They just wanted more and more and more and more and more. And they didn't care who was injured in this process. They didn't care about the widows. They didn't care about the orphans. They didn't care about the oppressed. They didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about the maimed. They didn't care what it cost anybody. They just wanted to get more. And so how do we respond as the people of God to that kind of leadership, a leadership that is not isolated to this period of Judah? It has infected nations across history at various times and again jeremiah nowhere here calls people to rebel against this king but to allow god to judge them and again we have to distinguish between what is unbiblical that is rebellion and what is uh, biblical and that is disobedience and that when we god calls you to walk away and to join the enemy's side, that really isn't rebellion, that's disobedience. They're disobeying this king to recognize the king that God has put in place. That we are um, serving the one that is the legitimate heir, if you will, of the grace of God. And so we come to this point where Jeremiah is not calling on the nations to rise up and kill their king, to displace him in any way, but rather we're going to let God do that through his mechanisms. Jeremiah himself does not raise his hand against him, um, even though what they do to him is sometimes very horrific, and, and um, he's not going to raise his hand against it. God will take care. Let God be your judge. We saw that last week. When Jeremiah is mistreated, when he speaks the truth and he gets slapped for it, 
throw in the stocks for it? What is the response? The Lord is going to remember you for this. The Lord's going to take this upon you. And that is the response of godly people to unrighteous national leadership. It is not that we are going to go out there and displace them, to destroy them, or but rather to turn them over to God and say, God, you take care of them. You see what they're doing. You see the inequity that is going on. You see the oppression. You see what's going, what, what, how the poor are being trampled upon just to get rich people richer. You see all that. And, and, and by the way, Christians aren't the only ones that see that. Okay? Um, there's a reason that, that people are listening to men like Bernie Sanders and Marx, Karl Marx and a lot of other people in that big group. And that's because they see the injustice. But the difference is, is one seeks to overthrow, thinking that they will enact justice, which they don't. Usually they act, enact retribution. Seldom do they enact justice. They just now, a different class becomes <laughs> the oppressors, and a different, another class becomes the oppressed. This happened in the French Revolution, right? Yes, the wealthy people did mistreat the poor. And then with the French Revolution, what did they do to the wealthy people? The national life comes out. And we start guillotining them all. Was well, that just? No. And so when we view that, our response is not rebellion, it's not overthrowing, it is to do what Jeremiah has done and says, the Lord is not blind. And he will judge in his time, by his agent, and according to his purposes. I want you to notice that in these two chapters, Jeremiah, remember, the Babylonian army is around the city. And Jeremiah could just be saying, told you so, told you so, told you, your guys are all... No, he is serving his king. His king sent to him for a message from the Lord, and he's sending that message back. He's saying, listen, get rid of the oppression, get rid of the idolatry, get this junk out of our city and out of your administration, out of your court, and do right. That's... It. And at this point, his expectation was that wouldn't happen, but he's already still serving his king and his people. He's prepared to either die or go into captivity or whatever God requires of him. Um, and there he is, serving the word of the Lord, the truth, to the people. And this is what God demands of us when we are in unjust environments, is to proclaim that it is unjust to call the leadership to justice, and to persist. To call sin, sin. To call repentance. And to champion the cause of those who are oppressed. And this Jeremiah did, does in these words, not just for one king, but for the, all these three kings since Josiah. And so we get to chapter 22, and, well, really, chapter 21, verse 12, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire. Even with the army surrounding the city, there's still time. But it's not about, God, do something wonderful because Jeremiah prayed this prayer. No. God is prepared to do something wonderful if you will do what's right. If you will repent and turn from your ways and, and conform yourself to God's ways. Again, in chapter 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plunder out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, widow. Stop shedding innocent blood in this place. If you... <laughs> Indeed, do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house. And he describes in, in a very glowing terms a whole lineage of kings will ride into town. You're going to 
have your kingdom extended, the house of David will be extended generations. Do you see what Zedekiah is being offered? The same thing that was being offered to David. And really to Saul. If you'll obey me, I'll establish your house. Saul didn't. God says, you're done. David, every time David sinned, was David sinless? Obviously not. But every time he was repentant. And we don't find him doing the same sin again. Not doing that again. That was a mess. I repented of that. And God established him, calls him friend. And everyone else from now then on is going to be measured against that man. And that's what God's offering to Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Execute righteousness, justice, and you will see a parade of kings come into this city from your house. The offer is just as genuine. Just have to do this right thing. But if you don't hear, we've already seen the desolation as promised. And we've already seen the, the testimony of God isn't going to be mocked in all this. The, the, everyone's going to point the finger not at God and say, how could God let this happen? Everyone's going to know why God did this. In verse 9, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. And so it begins with Jehoiakim who rebels and, and he is killed and, and describes that he's going to have the burial of a donkey. Um, it's going to be thrown in the heap to, to burn and to, to just be eaten by birds. And then he goes on and describes then what happened with his son. Well, his son was taken into captivity and it says that he's probably alive at the time that Jeremiah is speaking this. He says he will never get back. He will never see his homeland again. He will die in a foreign place and not be buried with his fathers. But for you, Zedekiah, you are going to survive the siege. And you're going to think you're going to be carried off into captivity just like your nephew. But instead, on the way, you're going to be slain and your sons. You will have no lineage left. And this is what happens. That in this final siege, they take Zedekiah and his family, and they take him, and uh, along the way, they stop at the encampment, if you will, of Babylon, and they kill them all. They slaughter them all. Nebuchadnezzar is tired of this house of David and their rebellion. And so we find all of this could have been circumvented, could have been avoided by simply acknowledging their sin and returning from it. And I talked about the temple being one of the areas of trust, there was another building that I said didn't get destroyed. And with this, I want to really press a conclusion. Um, There was something else they were trusting in. The other building was the palace. And the Babylonian philosophy was that they would set up vassal kings who would serve them and send tribute money to them, and they would displace the rebellious king and so they place him in the palace. And, and we find this indication um, to the sons of Josiah, which is both Zedekiah and Jehoiakim. And in chapter 22, we have um, this false hope, this false faith. Verse 15 says, Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me? Says the Lord. Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. He stipulates it again down in verse 23. 
He says, O inhabitant of love, make your nest in the cedars. How gracious will you be when the pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. We talk about the cedars of Lebanon, and that is what the palace was built out of. And the very wealthy would panel their homes out of cedar as an enduring, we still use it to some degree, and, and um, is long-lasting, very beautiful, and they would come out of Lebanon. And they put their trust in the wealth that they surrounded themselves by. I lived in a panel house. I am affluent. I'm the king. I'm success. I have power. I have authority. And certainly, I can trust in that. Because no matter what's happened historically, the palace is still here. Big white building still here on the hill. My house still stands. And God challenges them. Do you really think that you can insulate yourself from my judgment by not changing your ways and just acquiring wealth? Do you really think the wealth of the world can protect you from my wrath? I just want to share with you that I believe that is an American philosophy. That we believe that wealth is the answer. That we can be guarded from the judgment we are deserving of, not by repentance, not by changing our ways, but by increasing our IRA contributions. That that's the hedge against trouble, is to be stronger financially, to have a more stuff, bigger house, more things, that that's the thing that's going to guard against any problems in the future. And something we have invented really in a very, just the modern era, then we have, in addition to that, something we buy that's called insurance. Why? Because we believe the same as Zedekiah. I'm living in wealth. And so that insulates me from trouble. And again, Christ calls us to that, doesn't he? Do you remember his parables and stories? Where he talks about the man who built bigger barns and had more abundance, and he, I'm going to just sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool. Today. Tonight, you are going to be held accountable. Tonight. And he dies. The wealth can't insulate you. But we have this notion that that is the means of deliverance. And it is a worldly notion. It is one shared here by the king in his condition. And it is the second facet of his unwillingness to change his ways and humble himself and do what God calls him to do is because, well, I've got all this wealth. If I do what God calls me to, I'm going to have to surrender it. Yes, you're going to have to surrender. Because safety is not found in paneled houses. It's not found in the wealth and power of the palace. Josiah wasn't blessed because he was living in a cedar house. He was blessed because he did righteousness and justice, and he knew the Lord. Not just about him, he knew him. He didn't have to go to the prophet. He went to God himself. He made his way to the temple to worship himself. And this is the distinction And we find throughout the prophets, as we have studied them in the past, in the minor prophets, this declaration already done against Israel to the north before they fell to the Assyrians was, we are wealthy, what do we need with God? We have built up these means against our future, to secure our future. No. These things are 
so easily destroyed, easily taken away from you, and they cannot secure your future. There's only one who can secure your future, and that is Jesus Christ. It is God, and by trusting in him, then our future is secure. Not just eternity. Um, Yes, that's an important facet of it, but even the future this week, if you're trusting in your stuff and your paneled houses and your bank accounts, God knows that. God knows your heart that that's where it lies, that you feel secure because you have money in the bank, your bills sort of paid, um, and it's easy to start feeling secure in that. And then to realize, well, that can all be taken away just like that. And none of that can preserve your life. And so we are called upon to obey God's word, to listen to the prophets, to consider our ways, to examine ourselves and say, am I doing, executing, putting to work judgment, justice, righteousness in what I have authority over? My life, my family, our church, are we executing righteousness, justice, or are we part of the oppressors or those benefiting from the oppression? So God calls us to humble ourselves, not to trust in our prosperity not to trust in a white building on a mountain or a stake that we have that we prayed this prayer or got dunked in this tank. But rather, are we walking with the Lord in righteousness and truth? For there, in that condition, we are secure. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word and your truth. And we know it, we've heard it, doesn't mean we believe it or conform our lives to it. And so Lord, we pray your spirit to continue to work until uh, your purposes are established, that either we resist your truth to our own destruction and judgment, or do we humble ourselves and receive it, knowing that you desire our good. Lord, give us the wisdom, as you already have, by your word and your spirit. And now we pray that we might choose rightly. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.